All right. Why don't you turn to Habakkuk chapter 1, please. Habakkuk chapter 1. Now, as I've stated in the last two in-depth studies, the prophet Habakkuk, the entire book is about prayer. In chapter 1, we're going to see the confusion of the prophet is expressed in prayer. He has two problems, and he presents his complaints to the Lord. In chapter 2, then he sits on his watchtowers, we'll see, and he, um, his perception of the prophet is cleared up by prayer, as God reveals to him and gives him some direction and to write it down. And then in chapter 3, the revelation of the prophet that he has received reveals uh uh, reveals it to him through prayer, and he ends up with confident joy in the Lord. So you have uh, the um, uh, perplexity or confusion in chapter 1, you have the commitment of faith in chapter 2, and you have the, uh, the joy and rejoicing in faith by what God has revealed. And it's all done through prayer, all right? And as I said, the ratio speaks for itself. There's two ears and one mouth, so we should listen twice as much as we speak, even before God. Solomon in Ecclesiastes says, you know, God's in heaven. Uh, we're on earth, so let, let, let your words be few. Choose them well. And so, here the prophet Habakkuk, he begins in chapter 1, verse 1, you have the introduction, the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. And Habakkuk here introduces his vision. And the vision, again, is as he is awake. Uh, dream is asleep. The burden means the oracle. The term is usually identified with uh, something heavy, and usually with judgment. Um, the word can be used for carrying something or the prohibition of it, but here it's regarding the spiritual revelation that God is giving to the prophet. Um, God told Jeremiah not to use this phrase. If you now remember, Zephaniah and uh, Jeremiah and uh, Nahum are contemporaries of his. And um, uh, God told Jeremiah not to use the phrase, the burden of the Lord, any longer because the false prophets were using it. And uh, it was overused. It says, if you use it, I'm not going to talk to you. And God sent Jeremiah to, to the temple to preach the gospel and to, well, the gospel in terms of the Old Testament. And to tell them, you know, don't say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. And the God can't destroy this temple. And he was called to expose their superficial um, Faith in God, it was just uh, uh, mechanical and everything, but they really weren't living it out. And so, um, the prophet here was the spokesman for God, a messenger of his revelation to disclose to mankind. Um, and usually it's either to repent or um, to reveal some future things. Um, here the prophet really... Um, it's a little different because he's conversing with God by complaining to God and he's instructing the prophet rather than being the mouthpiece of God for the people. So really, usually God gives a revelation, the prophet speaks to the people, repents or whatever. And here, the prophet is complaining to God and then God is dealing with the prophet. It's kind of a, you know, back and forth thing here. And... Um, there's only three places where the term prophet is joined with the name of the prophet. And the other one, the other two is Haggai and Zechariah, both in chapter 1, 
verse 1. Um, Habakkuk um, means to embrace. And um, here he was one who embraced his people. He had a heart for his people. He wanted God to deal with them, to turn them around. And if you and I have any heart for uh, people that we love, whether they be Christian or non-Christian, if the Christian's not walking right, we want them to turn to the Lord, get right. So we encourage them, we confront them out of love. Um, faith for the wounds of a friend, deceit for the kisses of the enemy. If we have friends and loved ones and co-workers that don't know the Lord, we do all that we can to try to be praying for them. And if God opens an opportunity to share with them, that we might step out. And again, recognizing that we don't force anybody. When God opens the door, you share just nonchalant. You share with all the love and grace of God. And that person has to make a decision. If at any point that person says, you know, I really don't want to hear any more of this. I'm done. I won't, I won't share with you anything. I'll continue to pray for you. And I don't take it personally like you reject me. You don't reject me. There's no big deal. Too many Christians have too thin a skin. You know, they take it personal. As if um, you're God. You're not God. You're just um, a lot of sheep that's been found. <laughs> that's all. Now, again, the mode of Habakkuk here is a vision, okay, in contrast to a dream while they were asleep. So he was awake. Um, he most likely prophesied during the reign of uh, Jehoiakim, uh, 609 to 598, um, because you have um, Hezekiah, you have Manasseh. Some people believe that maybe he... He prophesied during Manasseh's reign, which was the most evil king of uh, the southern kingdom. And uh, if, if Hezekiah would have just allowed God to take him home when he was supposed to, um, Manasseh would have never been born. And he was the most wicked king. And as he was taken into Babylon, he cried out to God, and God forgave Manasseh. You've got to read the story of Manasseh if you've never done that. The most evil king, and he repented, and God restored him to his throne. Some believe maybe Josiah, but I, I think that he, he goes better with the, with the reign of Jehoiakim. So you have uh, Hezekiah, you have Manasseh, you have Josiah, you have Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Hezekiah. It's in the last of a reign because you have um, really um, uh, from 606 to 96 to 56, you've got 20 years of captivity, three uh, sieges. So it's not that long a period for all these kings because they were vassals to Babylon and they were supposed to govern under the authority of Babylon and then when they rebelled, you know, back and forth if you've gone with us and the other prophets um, you know that by now and so um, here he presents himself, we don't know where he's from, he gives no location or anything, and in verse 2 he says, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear, even cry out to you violence and you will not save so here the prophet again accuses God of not listening to his prayers. He addresses God by the covenant name Yahweh there, all capital letters. And um, his impatience is marked by the phrase, how long shall I cry? So apparently he's been seeking the Lord for a while. But you know, there's times when God allows us to seek him and, and, and he just doesn't say anything. It seems like it's all silent, like the, the heavens are brass. And, and he doesn't listen to us. Now, I think it's good that we examine ourselves. Well, maybe what, what's going on, Lord? Am I wrong? Am I going on something? And after I inspect my life and everything else, I know it isn't. Then I just realize God must have something in mind. Whether it be a test for my life, whether it be that um, silence is the thing that he wants me to be comfortable with right now, no idea. But um, 
Again, here the prophet is concerned because of the judgment that has come to the northern kingdom. Now the southern kingdom is here. And um, the word cry out means aloud uh, with the idea of help. So he's crying out to God for help. And, of course, when you're desperate and you're crying out to God, and we don't get our answer right now. We just think, what's going on? You know, what's wrong with God? And, um, you know, we can be patient when everything's going well. But it's when things aren't going well when we're to be patient. Read the book of James. <laughs> it's just the way it is. Now, um, you know, in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verse 10, you have the martyrs under the fifth seal. They cry out the same thing. How long, O oh Lord? And God says, kick back. There's some more of you to be killed. So God's timing, God's purposes, we don't always understand them. Um, the consternation of Habakkuk, notice there in verse 2, is that God has not been listening to him. Uh, you will not hear me. So, once again, the question is rhetorical, sarcastic, sort of disrespectful. To hear, to be attentive to. He wants his request answered. Now, you know, sin keeps us from uh, God hearing us. Um, self-will, uh, asking for the wrong motive. Um, uh, James and uh, others give us all these reasons. So we need to examine ourselves. And if push comes to shove and we can't find anything, I, I just... Wait on the Lord. I just resting what his word says. Um, his accusation of God is not uh, delivering the righteous. He uh, presents the complaint and arrogance. I even cry out to you. The emphasis is you, you, you can hear. You, you can answer, but you are hearing me and you're not answering me. But see, the prophet doesn't know what God is doing. Just like you as a son and daughter, when your parents are doing something and you think they're totally wrong, you don't know what they're doing. They're not telling you everything because you're the kid. But they know what they're doing. But you're convinced they're crazy. How much more when it comes to God? And so, in verse 3, he says, um, Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. So, again, he expresses in his prayer here the consternation, violence. He, um, why do you show me this iniquity, all this evil? Cause me to see trouble, all this um, viciousness uh, of sin and, and um, victimizing of people. For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. And so the prophet charges God for making him see the general decadence of his day. The expression why is interrogative, asking the reason for the answer. Notice these are all groups and pairs, as we said when we study it. The first two words describe the general overview of decadence of Judah. At the present time. These are the people of God. Iniquity means unjust wickedness, evil, trouble. What is wrong? And the pair here is used to pervert justice. Expression of uh, uh, oppressing individuals. Now, a lot of these things we can, we can identify with in our own day. There was a time when we lived in America, maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago, that, you know, we said, well, there's some cases like that, and sometimes there's an injustice, but we've moved to the place where it becomes more of the rule today from the bottom down. 
And um, it's not simply being critical of our nation. It's not simply being anti-American. It's simply seeing the evil and the decadence that's in our nation. Uh, and, and it's every day. It's nothing. Uh, it's, it's on lightning speed. And so here again, um, he describes a specific unjust oppression of the weaker and the more vulnerable members of society there at the end of verse 3. Destruction, robbery, devastation committed against the people, plundering. Violence, same word as in verse 2. Unscrupulous infringement on people. Wrongdoing, brutality. Um, I watched a video just the other day where a guy in his 30s is trying to uh, drag off a 13-year-old in a 99-cent store with her mother in the next aisle. And she's fighting this man and no one else around. Finally, someone else came and got him. But this is how brash people are in, the, in our society today because there's no consequences. When you have no consequence, you remove consequence, you destroy authority and people become very, very bold in their violence, in their vulgarity, in, in their intimidation, in everything. And I've told you that it won't be long before our streets are very, very dangerous. It won't be long because anarchy has been initiated from the top down. That's the problem. And so, all the evil expresses lamentable agony seeing the atrocities with his own eyes. And he says, God, why are you making me see this and everything? Strife, controversy, disputes. There's no peace, there's no joy, there's no... You know, friendliness in the city, in the streets, Judah, it's just, you know, everybody's out for themselves. Contentions. Anger. Conflict. And so, in verse 4, he says, Therefore the law is powerless, and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. So his frustration here, his irritation, the law is inept. Ungodly people are greater in number. Righteous, godly people are fewer in number. Consequently, the unjust conditions are of such that the, the rule is the evil. They pervert judgment that proceeds. This is the repeated practice described by the word Perverse. And so that becomes the norm. That becomes the rule. And it seems that nobody can get any justice. And uh, in a land when there has been justice and order and other things, it's very frustrating when that takes place. Now when it happens during a long period of time, it happens so slow that the society really doesn't mark it because it doesn't move fast enough through one generation. So in history's past of America, the progressivism of humanism and liberalism and socialism and Marxism has been very slow. But in the, our generation since the 60s, it has moved up to lightning speed and it's picked up speed in the last 10 years. So we've been able to see in one generation what past generations Never could have imagined. There's the problem. Habakkuk 
is the same way. In 5 through 11, we get the first answer of God to the problem of the prophet with God. Um, Verse 5, he says, look, among the nations, God speaking and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. So here the prophet is told by God, first of all, that, you know, you're not going to believe what I tell you. I want you to gaze and to fix your eyes on the nations who are around, the powerful nations. And I want you to watch, fix your eyes, perceive, consider, And I'm going to do a work that you're not going to believe when I tell you. And he goes on to speak in verse 6. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. And so... Here again, the prophet is receiving. He feels that God is inactive and he's not listening and he's just unconcerned. And God says, listen, Habakkuk, I've, I've been around for, for a little while. <laughs> I, this, this is my first rodeo. And um, I've, um, I know what's happening. I know what I'm doing. And what I'm doing, you have no idea. And if I did tell you, 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 you would think it, it can't be. And that's exactly what happens. You know, perhaps in your life you've sought the Lord and, and maybe you say, Lord, please don't let this happen. And, and it happens. And, and, and the thing you feared the most has come upon you. And as you go through it and God takes you through and he teaches you, when you come out on the other end, you're more like him and less like you. And you wouldn't give anything in the world to change what he puts you through. Because he knows what's best. And so the whole, the whole aspect of Christianity is not to get my will done, but to get God's will done. For me to align myself with the will and the word of God, and the will of God is expressed and recorded in the word of God. Not in my emotions, not in my opinions or anything else. And so that's why it's so important for people to sit down and listen and study the word of God. Open your Bible, go verse by verse, let God deal with you. Look at the context, what's going on? That we don't understand exactly what's going on between the prophet and God. But then also we can see the application to our own lives in many different ways. One interpretation, many applications. Depends what goes on, okay? It's not many interpretations in one application. That's usually what you hear from pulpits. No, no, no. One interpretation, many applications. And so here again... um, Verse 6, indeed I am raising the Chaldeans... So these are the Babylonians. Now remember that they received their independence from uh, um, Assyria around 625 or so. And um, um, here they are. They're, they're, they're a rising power coming up, or 725, and they're rising up. But um, God has already declared that they're going to be the head of gold. The dream that he gave Nebuchadnezzar, we'll look into that a little bit later on as we move along. God was going to begin the time of the Gentiles, beginning with Babylon. Where no longer are the Jews in power and control. Solomon was the last. And then you have the divided kingdom. Now the northern kingdom has gone to captivity. Now the southern kingdom is going to captivity. 
Now is going to begin the time of the Gentiles. The time of the Gentiles will run all the way till the Great Tribulation. There's been a pause by the last prophet for 400 years and then the Messiah came. And now there's been 2,000 years of kind of a prophetic stop to the clock. The last week of Daniel will begin when the church is raptured and the Antichrist appears on the earth. And that will begin the last week of Daniel, seven years of tribulation and great tribulation, which will end up with the ten-nation confederacy of toes of clay and of iron. Tap of democracy, but iron and clay don't make so it'll fall apart. And so, here again, um, the Babylonians go all the way back to Genesis, as we said this morning. Um, Shinar, uh, the Tower of Babel. Uh, Babylon is uh, mentioned second to Jerusalem. From Genesis to Revelation, the book of Revelation, the mother of harlots, Babylon, commercial, religious, opposing God completely. And so, he says they're bitter and hasty nation, which marches throughout the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. And so, here again, in verse 6, but, but notice in, in, in verse 5, before I go on, that I will. God is the one doing it. Okay? Now, we have to be careful that we don't accuse God of, of, of forcing people to do evil. Okay? When God prophesies, He tells us things that are going to happen before they happen. So when they happen, we know He's the only one that knows the future. But in that prediction or in that event that happens... If evil things happen, God doesn't force that person to do the evil. He just knows the evil they'll do so he can declare it or fit it into the way he wants it. But he's not the one forcing the man to do evil because if God forced a man to do evil or a woman, then God, how could God judge the person for the evil they did? God would be false. He would be unjust. So for God to be just, holy, good, and true, as the scripture says... He must give man a free will. You have a potential for obedience and disobedience. God knows exactly what you do. He doesn't force you to obey. He doesn't force you to disobey. Take it back to Genesis. Adam, you eat, you're dead. You don't eat, you live. It's a choice. You can't blame God for that. It was a real fall. And Adam was really at fault, not God. So Adam received the consequences, right? And because of him, it passed on to all the human race. Sin and death, completely. And so, here again, uh, God is the one that's in control. And yet, though he uses nations to judge um, people and other nations, he's not the author of the evil. He just uses the wrath of man to glorify himself as we said this morning. Now, in, in verse 6 here, the Chaldeas here, the territory of the lower Mesopotamia, on the Persian Gulf, lower Euphrates and the Tigris, that's where uh, the nation uh, was situated. And um, their temperament was bitter and hasty, impetuous nation, indicating angry and discontent. It's interesting, um, the same thing uh, can be said of them today. They're of Iraq. 
I ran. It just seems that um, the predominantly Muslims, when they're not killing others, they're killing each other. Um, look at the history of Islam. Pick up, pick up your internet, okay, and, and and search any any portion of history. Tell me when they had peace. And when they had peace, what were they doing to their enemies? It's the only religion that has world conquest in mind. No one else. And you convert or you die. If you don't believe that as a Muslim, then you're a greater infidel than the infidel. It's real simple. This thing about Islam being peaceful, somebody's smoking crack. They don't understand it. We just had a good evidence in Florida last night, right? The biggest one since 9-11. Because after all, they're not dangerous. Just a figment of imagination. How interesting. Now, remember that God revealed to Nebuchadnezzar um, that he was to be the head of gold, the supreme ruler. No one could... Um, Overrule him. Whatever he said, happened. There was no law to restrict him, like the law of the Medes and the Persians. Absolute goal, which is the most effective way to rule, if you can get the right guy. The problem is that we're all sinners. <laughs> and power uh, corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. There's a problem. Um, God revealed to Nebuchadnezzar that um, he made him a head of gold. In uh, the supreme empire of the world, in uh, chapter 2 of, um, of Daniel, if you remember, as he showed him the uh, uh, image of gold, arms of silver, and belly of brass, and legs of iron, and so on and so forth. And in the fourth chapter, it opens with these words, Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you, Daniel 4.1. He controlled everything. Absolutely everything. He is the most powerful ruler. Notice the metals decrease in their preciousness. Gold, silver, brass, iron, iron and clay. The empires of the world degenerate as you go down the line of time. And we are after the legs of iron already. The next thing to come is the ten toes of iron and clay. Right now, we're in an interim period of the prophetic clock being stopped. And we're expecting the Lord to come for us. I hope any day. That'd be good for me. But notice here in verse 7. They're terrible and dreadful. Their judgments are their dignity proceeds from themselves, and so the um, they pontificate their arrogance by their rule of their own sense of justice. They are terrible. They um, struck people with fear and dread, opposing and imposing the rule of fear. Their judgment, misspot, justice, and dignity is their exaltation proceeded from themselves, assuming political superiority to all. They didn't take advice from anybody. They just figured they were the best way, and the best way to do it was theirs, and that's it. 
If you don't like it, tough. Nebuchadnezzar ordered all the wise men to be killed. Remember, when no one could, ref nobody could refute him in Daniel 2, right? He said, okay, you guys can't tell me the dream and the interpretation? I'm going to kill you. Nobody could say anything, right? Nobody said, oh, you can't do that. In fact, they were rounding him up to kill him when Daniel got the word, right? <laughs> and he went to God. Look at verse 8. He says, Their horses also are swifter than lepers and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as eagles that hasten to eat. And so here again, beginning verse 5, you have... Um, God's response as he describes this ruthless nation that he's going to use. In verse 7 or verse 8, the army was um, um, very destructive, merciless. Their horses swift, as, uh, swift and fast, swifter than leopards, um, described figuratively to demonstrate their swiftness, their, um, their speed. Uh, their soldiers are more alert and cunning. Then hungry evening wolves, very descriptive. The people of that day knew exactly about lepers, about the wolves. They lived in the wilderness. They lived in the mountains, the valleys. They were aware of this. They are relentless. Notice, traveling long distances. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They're determined. They're persistent. They, they can taste the victory. They're, they're, they're picking up the spoils as they come along. They're, they're getting intoxicated with the power to destroy and to just be ruthless to people and not be able to be stopped. Uh, you know, we have never um, experienced anything like that in American streets. The last time we experienced anything in our nation was the Civil War. And um, other countries have experienced atrocities of civil war and uprisings that are just so violent all the time. And um, it's something that I don't believe America could survive. And it would be the ugliest thing that we've ever experienced because of all the things that are going on right now. And so... They have a keen eye to take their prey. Notice they fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. The word eagle here is believed to be the griffin vulture. And so they have a keen eye. They're looking for their prey. They're professionals. You know, the, um, the Israelis are the most up-to-date warriors because they've been fighting since their independence, 1948. The best soldiers are the ones who are always at war, right? Now, they want peace, but they can't. They're surrounded by their enemies. They constantly have to be alert. In Tel Aviv, just a couple of days ago, right? Some more terrorists went in, blew up public bus. Come out of Gaza. The religion of peace and love. <laughs> right? All right. Notice... God often describes man's 
cruelties and the nations and their conquest as brute beasts. Don't miss this. In Daniel chapter 2, God presented the kingdoms of the world, the empires of the Gentiles, through this great image. That's how man sees himself. But in chapter 7, he presents them as beasts. And God looks upon man, and that's exactly what he sees. When man is not ruled by God, he's living on the animal level. He's living for himself. He's living to please himself. He's living to see what he can get away with, how much he can amass. And that's it. Let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Epicurean philosophy, right? And since our country has gotten so far away from God, this is the indoctrination through the public school education as well as universities. And that's why we now um, are voting for two candidates for President of the United States that um, is really, really horrible. But what are you going to do? You've got to vote, right? All right? So I, I, I describe it this way. You want to get shot in the head or the leg? I'll take the leg. All right? You're going to get shot. Where do you want to get shot? To me, it's real simple. But it's not the best, is it? But it's what we have to deal with. And so verse 9. Their conquest is certain. Notice he says they all come for violence. They're violent people. The same word that he uses in the beginning about his people. This is what they come for. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. So they are cruel and unjust. They, they come with violence and they swallow up everything in their path. Their faces are set like the east wind. You can't stop the wind. It just blows right through you. They gather captives like sand. It just blows it. The wind grabs that sand, just takes it in sand dunes. The sand dunes of Israel are the gift of the Arabian <laughs> desert. The east wind, the Sirocco, just blows it over. Sand dunes, you know, they travel, they migrate, they're not stable. The wind blows them, they keep traveling. The wind just picks that sand up. This is what they're doing. Beautiful imagery here that he describes and very poetical. In verse 10, they are proud and invincible. He says, they scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold for they heap up earth and mounds. And seize it. The scoffing of kings and princes. And scoffing them. They make fun of them. He's no king. We're going to take him down. One week. Six weeks. You know, they, they surround the city. The way you build cities in those days is you look for water and roads. That's how you build a city. Main roads and water. If you don't have water... You don't build the city. You need water for people. And you need roads to defend your city and to bring things in. So they circle the city. They surround it. Cut off all water, all food. That's what they did in the days of Jeremiah. Uh, this time you should be reading Jeremiah. And um, particularly the siege that came into Jerusalem. 
And um, Jeremiah tells them that it's going to be horrible and that they're going to eat their children. And by the time Babylon had surrounded and, and the, the famine had already plagued in, there was gangs throughout the city. This also happened in Jerusalem after 70 AD. And children were being eaten by their mothers. It happened the same time during um, uh, the time of, uh, of, of the northern kingdom. As God judged them. And so, um, here again, they see themselves as superior to all the rulers. They scoff at them. They score them. They see no difficulty to conquer their fortress cities. Or their cities that are fortified. In fact, it says they laugh at them. They're so cocky, they're so, they're so professional, they're so proficient, they're so powerful. No one's been able to stop them. They removed the difficulty of high walls by building dirt mounds to reach the top, the height of the wall, and scale it. You've seen some of the old movies of the castles, the crusaders, and they dump oil over people and all that. And in spite of all the things they could do, they would just build that mount patiently, a little bit at a time. Over. Some of you went to uh, Israel with us. We went to Masada. You looked over the ridge there of, um, of um, the northern part of Masada, looking down where they made the approach with dirt to big, push the ramp up and to break into Masada. But when the Romans got up there, Everybody had committed suicide, except for a couple of women and about four or three, four kids. And that's where we get the story of what happened to Masada from Josephus Flavius. And so this was the custom of the day. Got a high wall, you got to build a mountain, you got to build up to it. They can scale it. And this is what he's describing here. So they see no difficulty with any of this stuff. They're a fierce people. In verse 11... They um, ascribe their victory to their gods. He says, then his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribes the power to his God. The kings did not act in accord with the knowledge of God. Changes his mind, he transgresses. So they knew God spoke to Nebuchadnezzar. God spoke to Pharaoh. God spoke to Cyrus, right? And they either obeyed or they didn't. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of the tree cut down. And Daniel warned Nebuchadnezzar of his pride. And that his enemies were going to be glad over that. Then a year afterwards, there in Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar walking through his palace says, Is not this the Babylon that I have built? I, 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 and that's it. God struck it. Boom. Made him as a beast for some seasons. Ate straw. Until he understood that the God in heaven is the one who rules and reigns over the earth. And Nebuchadnezzar humbled himself and he gave glory to God. So I expect to see Neb in heaven. Not every pagan king will be there. But those that did repent like Neb, yes. Pharaoh certainly didn't. Belshazzar took the vessels of God to praise his idols of gold and silver. And he saw the finger of God writing on the wall. Meaning me, tickle you farson. You've been weighed. You've been found wanting, and you're a dead man tonight. His knees smote one against another, and he sobered up real quick from his drunken feast. 
the queen was brought in after nobody could interpret it. She says, you know, there's a guy, Daniel, in the kingdom, used to serve your grandfather. And uh, you know about him, but you, you've been ignorant. You just, you know, cocky. So Daniel came in and Daniel says, but you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself or your heart, although you knew all this. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. Daniel 5, 22 and 23. Wow. Now God is using Babylon to judge Judah. But God is judging Babylon as he's going to bring me to Persia, right? God's in control. He's dealing with things, right? There's no problem with God. Now God's a problem to me in my understanding. God's not, he has no problems. I have problems. God doesn't have no problems. The king's trusted in their own pagan gods. He commits offense, ascribes, ascribing his power to his gods. Nebuchadnezzar called on all the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers to interpret his dream in Daniel 2. God bell many other gods, right? Nebuchadnezzar erected the image of gold 90 feet high, 9 feet wide at the plain of Dura in Daniel 3, right? Everybody's supposed to bow at the same time. Uh, Meshach, Shagar, Abednego didn't bow. They went into the fire. Then a fourth, like the Son of Man, was there. He called them out. Meshach, Shagar, Abednego, come out! <laughs> he came out. He smelled them. He looked at them. Nothing was wrong with them. Interesting. God's in control. In 12 through 17, you have the second problem Habakkuk had with God. And this morning we dealt with verse 12 through 13 in the Great Lanes. I'm not going to belabor it. You can get the study if you want. But the second complaint here against God, knowing God was um, holy, he couldn't reconcile his um, using a more wicked nation to judge his people. Um, and, and so... Here in verse um, 12, he says, Are you not from everlasting? Meaning about the eternity of God. In other words, he's eternal. It's a communicable, a non-communicable attribute that he has that is not ours. Now, he gives us eternal life, but we're not eternal. We'll live forever, but we had a beginning. He doesn't have a beginning. He has no ending. So there's a big difference, okay? Uh, we're um, finite. He's infinite. And so here, the aspect of, of, of his eternalness. He says, are you not eternal? O Lord, my God, the covenant name of God, my Holy One. So he knows that God is the epitome of holiness and these guys are bad dudes and there's sin in there. How can you do this? So he's having a tough time with this. And he says, uh, we shall not die because all of a sudden now God has already revealed to him that he's going to use Babylon, right? But now he says, we're not as bad as them, but that's, 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 not, the, that's not the point. The point is, Babylon is horrible, but my people are bad. So the comparison is not between you and someone else. The comparison is, is you between you and God. How are we doing? That is the true comparison. And, and the prophet understands it, but in his confusion and all this, and he's moving emotionally, and he, and he just can't put it all together. But we shouldn't be surprised because we go through the same things. So he says, O oh Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O oh rock, you have marked them for correction. So he's appointed Babylon for judgment, which he would through the Medo-Persians. But then he says, uh, but you have marked them for correction. That's not the Babylonians. It means that he's, he's marked, he's He's a place and put in place the Babylonians as the instrument to chastise Judah. God's instrument of judgment here. And then 13 says, you are of pure horizon to behold evil. You can't look upon it 
with some acceptance or condonance. You cannot look on wickedness with an acceptance or, or, or permissive way. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? There's the prophet's major flaw. The comparison not between one and the other. If, if you, and there are people that are very, very moral, that are ethical, even in this corrupt day, hard to believe, but there are. And, um, um, and if they don't repent and they die, the Bible says they're lost and they're eternally separated from God. Now, that is offensive to people in the world. That's offensive to religious people. That's very offensive to moral, ethical people. But the Bible says that if we're not born again, we'll never enter the kingdom of God. Now, I have to believe God or I have to believe man. One of the two. God is so serious about sin, as I said this morning, that he crucified his son to get rid of sin, a way to heaven. And he signed it in blood. My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? There's your answer. Three, verse 3 of Psalm 22. Because you're holy. The son became sin for me. The father could not look on the son because he was judging the son, pouring out his wrath on him for me. And he did that so now men and women have access to God for salvation. Without that, we'd be lost. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes should not perish but everlasting life. Incredible love of God. And so... The dilemma of the prophet. Evil nation, holy God, how can you do this? We're not that bad as them. That's not the point. Verse 14 down to 15. Well, to 17, the lamentation over the cruelty of the Chaldeans. 14 and 15, the prophet depicted the vast conquest of the nation of Babylon uh, like fishermen catching fish. Very picturesque. Why do you make men like fish of the sea? Like creeping things that have no rule over them. They take up all of them with a hook. They cast them in their net and gather them in their dragnets. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. And so the inquirer of the prophet regards the helplessness of those captured in verse 14. He questions God for allowing it. Why do you make men like fish? Now, God is not unjust. So the very question is an implication that I'm more compassionate than God. What the prophet is saying, if I were God, I wouldn't allow this. And how often people who are non-believers, people that are atheists or agnostics or they're professors at university say, you, you, you don't believe a loving God would allow um, people to be killed, do you? That's a loaded question. Well, the God of love of my Bible does. In fact, the God of my Bible kills people who are evil. Whether it be now or whether it be later by eternal separation. And so God allows this fallen world to function and yet he intervenes as he wills for his glory and for the good of his people. And so that's always the loaded question, you know. 
If you believe in a God of love, how do you explain the fallen world? Well, because God didn't make it like this. Adam did. I could turn around to the professor and say, why, why, why do you pick on Christians in your classes? Why do you grade harder paper for those who say they believe in God? Because you're prejudiced, right? God isn't prejudiced. God looks at everybody the same and he judges them according to the evil. Straight across because he's holy. And so that's the failure of man. So the prophet here laments and he just, um, you know, he's very picturesque again. The question to God, the answer is simple. The people had rejected Yahweh and apostatized. So um, God allows judgment to come. But before all this happens, God has warned over and over again, right? Hundred um, and twenty years or so for the flood. We don't know how long He gave for Sodom and Gomorrah. If He gave before that, when the angels came, but God, but God's been warning the world for two thousand years that He's coming. So God always gives plenty of warning. And when the judgment comes, oh, well, why would God? He's given the warning. He gave the Amorites four hundred thirty years. Four hundred thirty years. What's the excuse? Notice he indicated the people were uh, leaderless, like creeping things that have no ruler over them. But this is the result of their wicked living. Look at the United States. There is no leadership. There's a great vacuum of leadership in our nation. It wasn't always like this. It's a result of how we've lived and the choices we've made and the things we've believed and the things we've embraced and the things we've rejected. These are the consequences. We've sown to the wind. We've reaped the whirlwind, as Hosea says. Notice verse 15, the systematic capture is described very picturesque. He depicts the Babylonians by their various effective methods of war like professional fishermen. They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their nets and gather them in their dragnet, the various ways to catch fish. These guys are they're effective. They know how to do it. The prophet's lamenting here, even that that's his people, as bad as they are. He stated the Babylonians gloated over their victory. Notice, therefore, they rejoice and are glad, verse 15 says. Victory is sweet, isn't it? Just look at a football game. And, and, they, and, they, and, and they look at the other team. Yeah, we love it, huh? Turn on the cage fighting. We're bad news, man. Turn on TV, the reality shows. All reality shows is to see and to pull out the worst in you. That's what it's about. There was a time when movies and that was to present the best in you and to teach you. Now it's to bring out the worst in you and to corrupt you. And so, as Christians, I'm not saying you can't go to the show, I'm not saying you can't watch TV. You better make some judgments, though. Because let me tell you, pretty soon you may have to throw that little square thing away, the way things are going. You never know. 
So verse 16 says, Therefore they sacrifice their, to their nests and burn incense to their dragnets because they, by them, they, their share is consumptuous and their food plenteous. And so in verse 16, here the prophet indicates the relationship of their victory with their gods. The word therefore looks back to the capture of the nations as the reason why they did what they're going to describe. Verse 14 and 15. The Babylonians worshipped their gods, ascribing them their victory. Listen to the words. They had sacrificed to their nets and burned incense to their dragnets. It's figurative language ascribing to their gods. The victory they're ascribing to their gods, so they're thanking them. And, and, and what is it that they, they, they're giving victory for? It says, because they share is sumptuous and their fruit plenteous. In other words, they are, they are reaping the spoils of war, becoming very wealthy. All the gold, all the silver, everything. Food. Do you know what it took to move an army? Of that number, food, water, all the provisions. As you're destroying, you're pilfering, you're just destroying and taking everything. You're going to need camp. You take slaves. You have them do the hard work. The women, forget it. Men are animals at war. And all these things are true. And we have the nerve to send our women to war. But I tell you, we have gone so far away from this nation what it used to be. Incredible. And so they become wealthy and they have all kinds of food and they give that glory to their gods. And in verse 17, the prophet closes by expressing his lamentable despair. Listen carefully. He says, Shall they therefore empty their nets and continue to slay nations without pity? I mean, he is just done with this. Will this go on and they won't be able to be stopped? Shall they therefore empty their nets and then keep on doing it again? Will they continue unmercifully? Without pity? Well, they will until they conquer everybody. As God was going to use them. And once they subjugate the nations, then they are under their tribute. And they become their servants. That's what happens at war. So often today, you have a lot of Mexicans telling them that America stole their land. You better do some history. California and Texas was won through a war. Nothing was stolen. In fact, America gave the property all the way down to Mexico City. The U.S. could have taken it down to there. They didn't. I was born in Mexico City. I am a Mexican citizen. I'm an American. I don't fly the Mexican flag. I live in America. You want to fly the Mexican flag? Take a trip down south. This is America. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love and goodness. We love you. We thank you. 
We praise you for your word and for your goodness and all that you do, Lord. Father, have mercy on us, Lord. Father, each of us has such a sin nature that if we don't walk with you, we can just bring such hurt to ourselves and others. And we pray we would abide in you and continue to grow and that we would just use the opportunities to minister the gospel by your grace and your love to so many that are lost, Lord. And some of our best friends and family members and those that we work with, Lord. And so we pray for our nation. We pray for our leaders. We pray that um, you would use Christians to just be that example and to present the gospel, Lord. As you're praying, if, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. And right where you sit, you can accept them right now as you say this prayer. This is your prayer to God. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. Lord, um, forgive me for all my sins. I want to live for you, Lord. Make me your son. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name.